So that's, of course, uh, Back to the Future came out 30 years ago this weekend, actually. And if you're not familiar with the movie, so this guy invents a time machine out of a DeLorean, which is awesome. And he sends Marty McFly from 1985 to 1955. Uh, Marty McFly is played by Michael J. Fox there. And as always happens in any movie where there's time travel, he interferes with events, uh, messes up the first meeting between his parents, his mother falls for him, and he spends much of the rest of the movie trying to get his father, George, to win his mother's heart. Because, of course, if he doesn't and his parents don't get together, he will never exist, which would not be a good day. So in this clip, you kind of see his father, George McFly, as this fearful, kind of cowardly, lacking in self-confidence young man uh, trying to talk to this girl that, that he's not even really sure that he likes. And you saw a little bit, and if you watch the whole trilogy, this comes forth a lot more clearly, that his son Marty is the other extreme, very self-confident, very even at times prideful, if not overconfident. And those are the sort of two character traits that we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this morning when we get into our Bible uh, scripture. But before we go any farther, just in case we have any visitors or anybody, uh, good morning. My name is Dave Hershey. Uh, I have the opportunity to speak here every, every now and again. Actually, this morning, originally I was scheduled to help my wife in the three-year-old class, and we were trying to explain to our daughter that we, why we had to come to church early, and I was trying to explain that mommy's going to teach the three-year-olds and daddy's going to teach the grown-ups. And our daughter said, why would they want you? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, hon, but here we are, so we'll see how it goes. But uh, two weeks ago, if you were here, Tim started a, a brief, um, I'm not sure if it's going to be brief, but a series on uh, a couple characters in the Old Testament, some of these stories that come from a part of the Bible that maybe if you went to church growing up, you, you heard them in Sunday school, maybe they're not familiar to you, but characters like Samuel and then King Saul, King David, and we're looking at this, this story, like the original Game of Thrones maybe, uh, these characters who lived thousands of years ago, but as we look at their stories we see that they dealt with a lot of the same things that we deal with today. So today we're going to be looking at the story of a man named Saul. But just for a little bit of background, and uh, I will warn you, maybe this has gone through a lot of a Bible story today, but the doors have been locked, so you cannot leave if if that scares you. But uh, we're going through the story of Saul, but before we get there, two weeks ago, Tim talked about uh, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, had asked Samuel the prophet to give them a king. And in this was significant because up to this point, God had acted as their king. So in essence, they're kind of rejecting God as their king in favor of a human king so they can be like the other countries around them that have human kings. So with that said, we're going to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 9, the first couple of verses, where we meet the man who is going to become the first king. It says, There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome in a, a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So we meet this guy named Kish with his ancestors who have hard names to pronounce, but that's one of the fun things about reading the Bible out loud, I guess. And if we kept going with the story, uh, Kish has some donkeys, his donkeys run away, he sends his son Saul in search of these donkeys. Saul, as he goes off in search, takes a servant with, 
And they start traveling from town to town, place to place, village to village, searching for these lost donkeys. After a while, as naturally might happen, they start to get a little bit frustrated. They can't find the donkeys. And Saul's servant says, hey, Saul, there's this town over here where this man of God lives. Maybe he can like do some supernatural stuff and help us find the donkeys. So that's where they're going to go. Pick up the story then in verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. Samuel being the prophet, the man of God that they were going to visit. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So Saul's coming into the town, Samuel sees him, and God's like, that's the guy that's going to be king. They have a conversation, Samuel, Samuel says, don't worry about the donkeys, they've been found, it's good. And oh, by the way, you're the guy that's going to be king. Saul objects, he says, I'm not worthy to be king, I'm like, my family's too small, I'm, from the, I'm the least, I'm not, I'm not the right candidate. But Samuel says, sorry, God's chosen you, it's the way it's going to be. They part ways. Saul heads home. As he's going home, there's this other whole weird thing that happens where he comes across this group, it says, of prophets who are like prophesying, which means different things in different parts of the Bible. Just think of people who kind of have visions, maybe some ecstatic experiences. They speak these words from God that they're receiving. And it says that the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he starts to prophesy along with all these prophets. And when people see this, they're surprised. They're like, oh, is Saul now a prophet, maybe they didn't expect him to be someone who was speaking some words from God. Well, a little after this, Samuel gathers all the people of Israel together, reminds them that they have rejected God and that they want a king, and announces that God has chosen a king, and he is Saul. And the drum goes off, and nobody comes on stage. They start looking for Saul. It turns out Saul's hiding. He doesn't want to be in the spotlight. He's hiding among the supplies. They drag him out. Everybody sees him. He's a head taller than everyone else. So he looks like a king, big, powerful guy. And most people cheer. Like, yeah, this is our guy. We got our king, finally. Some people are kind of skeptical. Really? Saul? He's the guy who's going to be king? And after this, they all just kind of go home. It's actually very anticlimactic. Saul may be king, but there's no governmental structure. There's no palace. Even the people that he's the king of aren't really united at all. But if we just look at this very first part of the story, we see a lot of hints that the author kind of drops onto us that are telling us uh, if we know that Saul is not going to turn out to be a very good king. One of the first things we notice is that he is a Benjaminite, which to you and I, if we're just reading the Bible, maybe just, okay, what does that mean? But if you go to the book, one of the books of the Bible just before 1 Samuel, there's this book called Judges which if you're like a teenager or have someone who likes a lot of bloody violence, I mean, that's the book for you. It's just gruesome, weird, crazy stuff. But at the end of the book of Judges, there's this Benjaminite guy, to make a long story short, who commits what I would just say is probably the most horrific part of the Bible, this crime that is just gruesome and disgusting. You can read it for yourself on your own time. But because of this crime this man from Benjamin commits, it leads to a civil war among the people of Israel. And the Israelites end up destroying, almost destroying, the Benjaminites. They're down to just very few people. So when Saul says he comes from the smallest tribe in Israel, part of the reason why is because not too long ago there was this civil war and his tribe was almost totally annihilated. 
But if you're reading the Bible like straight through and you read this story about the Benjaminites and their crimes and they come off looking very untrustworthy and then you read a couple chapters later that the first king of Israel is from that same tribe, that's got to be a red flag. Like really that guy from that group of people is the one that God has chosen to lead? Might be a little bit skeptical of his capabilities. A couple other things that would make you skeptical of Saul, he lost these donkeys, which kind of hints that maybe he's not that good of a shepherd, not good at leading the people. He seems kind of dim spiritually. You would think that he would have known about Samuel, this great prophet, this great man of God, but it's his servant who says they should go visit him. So right away you see Saul not really in touch with the things of God maybe. And even the people's skepticism when they see Saul prophesying, they're very surprised because maybe he's not the kind of guy that would speak words from God. But maybe you would say, well, he's tall at least. He's like LeBron James. I mean, he's among them. He's the tallest guy there. Well, actually, that's not a good thing. That's the only time in the entire Old Testament where a member of God's people is noted for his height. Other times in the Bible when it talks about how someone's really tall, it's always like an outsider, a pagan, an enemy of God's people. So Saul actually is like the king, kings of the other nations, which is what the people think they want. But if you know the story, it's not really what they, what they need. And finally, when Saul is called to be king and come in front of everybody, he's scared and he's timid. He hides. If we were to maybe psychoanalyze Saul at this point, we might think that he has what some have called imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is a psychological phenomenon in which people are unable to internalize their accomplishments. Despite external evidence of their competence, people with this syndrome remain convinced that they are frauds, that they don't deserve the success they've had. And if you talk to them like, hey, you've been successful. Here's some of the things you've done. They might write it off as just luck, good timing, things like that. Neil uh, Gaiman, or Gaiman, not sure how to pronounce that one. Neil Gaiman is an award-winning author. Uh, I looked to see some books he's written, but he's written so many that it was hard to pick out one. I know he's written an episode of Doctor Who. That's probably how I know him. But he's written comic books. He's written young adult novels. He's written children's books. He's written... Uh, screenplays, and he's won awards in all sorts of different uh, genres of, of writing. Just very successful author. We well, gave a commencement speech at a, at a university a few years back, and he talked about uh, some of the challenges he's faced with having success. He said in the speech, the problems of failure are hard. The problems of success can be harder because nobody warns you about them. The first problem of any kind of even limited success is the unshakable conviction that you are getting away with something and that at any moment now they will discover you. It's imposter syndrome, something my wife Amanda christened the fraud police. In my case, I was convinced that there would be a knock on the door and a man with a clipboard, I don't know why he carried a clipboard, but in my head he always did, would be there to tell me that it was all over and they had caught up with me and now I would have to go and get a real job, one that didn't consist of making things up and writing them down and reading books that I wanted to read. And then I would go away quietly and get the kind of job where you don't have to make things up anymore. Just this fear that he's going to be found out as a fraud and an imposter. Even Albert Einstein may have suffered uh, from this. It's reported that near the end of his life, the great scientist confided in a friend saying that the exaggerated esteem in which my life work is held makes me very ill at ease. I feel compelled to think of myself as an involuntary swindler. And it looks like Early in his career as the king of Israel, Saul suffered from something along these lines. Later on, pretty soon, we're going to see him struggling with 
kind of the opposite extreme of pride. But these two things, this lack of confidence, imposter syndrome, feeling like a fraud versus pride, overconfidence, are two sides of a coin. They both reveal a person who is not rightly assessing who he or she is. So with that said, let's dive back into the story of Saul. And the story of Saul at this point, we're going to kind of go through three battles he fights very quickly. And I know there's a lot of names that are hard to remember, and that's okay. But these three different battles he fights with different enemies of, enemies of Israel kind of show the rise and fall of his character. So early on, when he's king, he has a chance to prove his leadership capabilities when this town called Jabesh-Gilead is attacked by people called the Ammonites. And the people of Jabesh-Gilead, with their lives on the line, fearing that they're going to all be killed, send out messages calling for help. Saul receives the message in chapter 11, and it says, When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout all Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah 30,000. So Saul leads this enormous army into battle, and they destroy the Ammonites, they save this city. This really ends up being Saul's greatest victory. This is the high point of his career. The people cheer Saul as king. Some of the people were even like, where are those guys who didn't think Saul should be king? They were wrong. Let's kill them. And Saul says, everybody calm down. This is, we want a battle. Let's, let's celebrate. Let's not go for vengeance right now. So Saul's reign seems to be solidified. He's the king. He's acted as the king. He's won this battle. He's silenced his doubters. But shortly after this, in what we could say is battle number two, uh, the Philistines, another neighboring enemy of Israel who lives nearby, they attack Israel. And at this, for this conflict, Saul is only able to gather a tiny force of like 600 people. So he goes from 330,000, which historically was probably a bit of an embellishment on the part of the, of the human author of the Bible, just kind of emphasizing how many people Saul had. Because I just try to look at some numbers. I'm a little bit of a, I like history, so I'm not going to share too many of these with you. But the American military during the size of the Revolutionary War was never more than 90,000 people. And other militaries throughout history just kind of indicate that this is probably an exaggeration, the 330,000, just telling us that Saul had a huge army, and now with the Philistines, it's a pretty small army. But though his army was now small, they're like, it's okay, we got God on our side. Like, we only have a couple hundred guys, Philistines are really scary, but we have God on our side. And Saul and his army were waiting for this this prophet Samuel, this man of God, to come and do this sacrifice that Samuel was going to do. But when Samuel didn't show up at the time that he had said he was going to show up, more of Saul's men start going home. They're like, forget this. I don't want to die. I want to go home. These Philistines are too scary. God apparently isn't helping us with this one. And Saul, with his army melting away, takes matters into his own hands and does this sacrifice. Naturally, the minute after the sacrifice is done, Samuel shows up and is like, what have you done? How could you do this? Now Saul, in this, this act, I think if you want to be sympathetic to Saul, it kind of makes sense. His army's leaving, Samuel's not there, he had to do something, right? But this tells us, Samuel talks in 1 Samuel 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command, the Lord your God, 
the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man of his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So kind of seems to escalate quickly a little bit with this one, what seems to us pretty minor uh, sin, travesty, being something that God would condemn Saul for, but that's what happens. But despite Saul's con- uh, condemnation, despite him say, supposedly being rejected by God, he still manages to win a great victory over the Philistines. Of course, if you take the time to read the story yourselves, you would see that he still makes a lot of boneheaded decisions during that battle. That brings us to battle number three, the last one. There's no rest for the weary. They did a lot of fighting back then. I guess they just had to keep fighting all their enemies. But uh, after defeating the Philistines, Saul is tasked with fighting this people called the Amalekites. And this one is more years and years before when the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt and had been freed. When they were freed slaves, just weak and on the road, the Amalekites had attacked them. And God is saying to Saul now, this is the time we're going to get our vengeance on the Amalekites. They attacked you when they're weak. This is sort of payback judgment from God time. God commands Saul to destroy everything. Men, women, and children, animals, everything of the Amalekites. But Saul goes into battle with a large army this time. And though he destroys a lot of people, he lets the king live. And he lets his soldiers keep back some of the sheep and the cattle and the lambs, the spoils of war, if you will. So we pick up the story then in 1 Samuel 15. This is the longest and the last chunk we'll look at. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord that night, all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul is going to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. So you see that pride starting to come in. He set up a monument to his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? In other words, you're supposed to kill all the cattle and the sheep, and I hear them making their noises. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Come on, we're going to sacrifice them. It's cool, right? But we totally destroyed everything else. Enough, Samuel said. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me. I, I think Saul was probably more like, tell me. Like he was probably scared at this point of Samuel. The voice probably cracked there. I don't know if that is just my interpretation. Uh, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Samuel said. I went on the mission that the Lord assigned. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back their king. The soldiers, they took the sheep and the cattle and the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to make sacrifices to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. 
You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So if we're reading this today, we are reading it today. As we're reading this today, this crime that Saul has committed doesn't seem, I think, that bad to us. I mean, if anything, you look at a story like this one, and this is a story that some of our friends, even some of us, if we're honest, look at, and we're like, God's kind of a mean guy. Like, kill everybody, even the women and children. Like, that seems a little bit extreme, doesn't it? Seems a little bit of a far cry from the picture of God we see in Jesus that we follow as Christians. And while that's a huge issue, violence and the Old Testament and God commanding destruction, something we really can't get into today. So feel free to talk to Pastor Tim if that's something you want to ask him about. But if we can get past uh, the cringing at this sort of violence that seems un- ungodlike to us, we can see what Saul's crime is. And simply put, his crime is, you know where I'm going with this, his crime is pride. He built an altar to himself. He's gotten to the point where maybe he thinks that he can take what God has commanded him, which seems pretty clear, do this thing, and interpret it in a way that makes himself look good or interpret it in his own way. Not until he's pressed by Samuel, more than once, does he finally say, I have sinned and confess his sin. So we still see here some glimpses of Saul from early in his career where he seems at the end, he says, I was afraid of my men. Like he's afraid to lead, afraid to take leadership, afraid to make the hard decisions. But on the other hand, his problem is diagnosed as pride. He's won great victories and he thinks he's something, something big now. So we have pride, we have arrogance, thinking too highly of ourselves. We have imposter syndrome, this lack of self-confidence, thinking too lowly of ourselves. This, this old, old story from thousands of years ago about all kinds of weird stuff with hard names to pronounce, I see myself there. It speaks to us today. Which one are you? Are you the, the pride, the, the Marty McFly side of the equation? Or are you the, uh, the fearful, the, the more cowardly George McFly side of the equation? I suspect, if you're like me and other people that I've talked to, probably both at different times. Uh, the author Henry Nouwen writes, Maybe you think that you are more tempted by arrogance than by self-rejection. But isn't arrogance, in fact, the other side of self-rejection? Isn't arrogance putting yourself on a pedestal to avoid being seen as you see yourself? Isn't arrogance, in the final analysis, just another way of dealing with the feelings of worthlessness? Both self-rejection and arrogance pull us out of the common reality of existence and make a gentle community of people extremely difficult, if not impossible, to obtain. I know too well that beneath my arrogance there lies much self-doubt, just as there is a great amount of pride hidden in my self-rejection. Whether I am inflated or deflated, I lose touch with my truth and to distort my vision of reality. He gets to the core of the issue. Whether you see yourself more with Saul earlier in his career as the fearful, hiding from the spotlight, fraud kind of person, or later in his career as the prideful, look all the great things I've done, let me build a monument to myself. Both of those things distort the reality of who we truly are as human beings. To or maybe oversimplify it, our problem is that we do not assess ourselves well. Now, I grew up in going to church like my whole life. Um, I remember learning the stories of Saul and, and David 
and these stories that we're talking about in this little series here. And I remember it was always put forth very clearly that Saul was this guy who was rejected by God, uh, and David was this guy who was, like, God's favorite. Even some people I remember saying, like, Saul was the human choice and, and, and David was God's choice. But if you read it, like we've just done, I mean, the writer says that God chose Saul, which is a whole host of other questions for me. Like, if God chose Saul, then how does that work with his sovereignty and, and, and human freedom? You can ask those questions of Tim, too. But at any rate, the writer of this, if you want to look at Saul in a sympathetic light, and as, I mean, I've spent a little while, a couple weeks getting ready for this sermon, so I, want to, I don't want to just talk about some bad guy. Like, I've started to see Saul in a very sympathetic light. And it seems the writer is kind of, like, the human writer of this is almost slanting things to make David, who's going to come up later, the next king, look even better. Because if you actually look at the crimes that David and David's son Solomon, the great kings, are going to commit, they're just as bad as what Saul did, and they don't get rejected by God. So it's easy to see Saul, I think, if you want to, in a sympathetic light. And even in his rejection by God, he still reigns for 40 years. And the Bible says he started reigning when he was 30, so he lives to be 70. That's a, for a rejection by God, that's a long time to reign. But I think I'm mostly sympathetic to Saul because when I read the story of Saul, I see myself in Saul. Like, as a kid grew up in church, you hear the story of, like, David fighting Goliath, stepping out onto the battlefield, looking down his foe, Biff, the tall guy, and just, like, taking him out. And that's who you want to be. Like, you want to be the hero. You want to be the courageous guy or girl stepping out and winning the victories and having success. But when I look at Saul hiding from the spotlight, fearing that people are going to find him, find out who he truly is. I, I've, I've been there. When I look at Saul as this sort of, look how great I am, I, now I'm going to build a monument in my own honor. I've been there. I see myself in Saul. I may not want to, but I do. As I was preparing for this this morning, I was uh, sharing some of these thoughts I I was having about the story of Saul and this pride and self-rejection and all this with with my wife, Emily. And she was talking about how that kind of sounded similar to some of the things she was reading as she prepares to to go back to school as a teacher in the the fall. And she shared with me this this book by an author, a psychologist named Carol Dweck, who talks about something called fixed mindsets and growth mindsets. So a fixed mindset is a mindset that is carved in stone. It's the belief that your qualities are simply what they are and you cannot change them. You're born with a certain amount of intelligence, a certain personality, certain morals, and that's just the way it's always going to be. Carol Dweck talked about in the book how her sixth grade teacher believed that people's IQ told the whole story about them. So she actually sat the students in order from like the highest IQ to the lowest and only the kids with the highest IQ we're allowed to have responsibilities like taking a note to the principal's office or, or uh, cleaning the chalkboard or whatever kind of things that the kids were allowed to do. The opposite of the fixed mindset is the growth mindset. In the growth mindset, you recognize that you have some basic qualities, perhaps, that you were born with. But you also recognize that you can cultivate and shape these things through your own effort. The people may have different talents and tastes, but we can also change and grow. She even talked about in the book that the guy who invented the IQ test never meant it to be something that just kind of set you in a position where you would never move from. 
but it was meant to be something to kind of give you an assessment of where you're starting from to help you move on to something different. So if we look more at the fixed and the growth mindsets, uh, if you look at something like skills, fixed people would say you're born with skills and you just have them or you don't. Growth mindset people would say that skills come from, from hard work. When you face a challenge, a fixed mindset person might look at a challenge as something to be avoided because it's either going to expose you as someone who doesn't have that skill or you just don't have that skill. Whereas a growth person would look at the challenge as something to be embraced, an opportunity to grow. When it comes to effort, a fixed mindset person might look at effort as unnecessary because, again, you either have that skill or you don't. Whereas a growth mindset person would look at effort as something essential, as a path to mastery. When it comes to something like feedback from others, a fixed mindset person would get defensive, take it personally. It's an attack on their character. Whereas a growth mindset person would be open to feedback, finding it useful, something to learn from. And finally, setbacks, a fixed mindset person might blame other people for a setback. Like Saul saying, the men took the, took the, took the sheep that they weren't supposed to take. Or get discouraged. Whereas a growth person would use it as a wake-up call to work harder next time. This past week, uh, Emily and I took our kids. We went up to Raystown Lake and got a little cabin to go camping. And it was a great time. But uh, one thing, so it really illustrated me throughout the week, a couple things we did in the camping trip, places where I have a fixed mindset. Uh, One of these places is building a campfire. So in the last... 10, 15 years of my life since I was in college and worked at a summer camp for a couple summers. I had gone camping like with my family a couple times. I'd gone camping with college students at Penn State Berks I work with. And I always kind of would like step back and let them build the campfire. But I would kind of carry myself in a way that was almost like I could do this if I wanted to, but I don't really, you know, but I'm just going to supervise you. And I liked the idea that people whether my family or the college students, like thought of me as a guy who could build a campfire. Like, I mean, that's kind of a weird analogy, but whatever. And I think as I, was, I, was, as I thought about, think about this, like there was a fear in me that like if, I don't know, my brother-in-law Nate had to go to the bathroom and I actually had to build the campfire, that it would fail and I wouldn't be able to do it. And I would be exposed as a fraud. And it was really funny on the first day we were at this camping on Monday, I was the only person there to build the campfire. So this was my fixed mindset being challenged. I I got it all ready, and I lit it, and it started to burn. And I was like, I am amazing. Like, this is confirming my character. Then about, I don't know, 10 minutes later, the bigger logs didn't catch, and the fire went out. And I just fell apart. I started snapping at my kids and my wife. I started, like, I'm just like, I'm going to be a grumpy person the rest of the night. The, the people in the next campground over, they were from Texas, so I can't let them see this because, you know, they're probably amazing at building campfire. Like, I, I totally, totally was a mess. But then I got it going and uh, came back, and my self-esteem once again was restored. But it was amazing to, to look at that experience, something as silly as building a campfire, and to see how it exposed my, my own fixed mindset and how I saw my identity in that situation, at least, based on... How well I did. I do have to say that by Wednesday, with my growth mindset, learning from my mistakes, the Wednesday campfire, amazing. But still have a lot to learn, growth mindset. Anyway, people with a growth mindset also possess a more accurate view of themselves, which is maybe surprising. As Carol Dweck writes, studies show that people are terrible at estimating their abilities. Recently, we set out to see who is most likely to do this. 
Sure, we found that people greatly misestimated their performance and their ability, but it was those with the fixed mindset who accounted for almost all the inaccuracy. The people with the growth mindset were amazingly accurate. When you think about it, this makes sense. If, like those with the growth mindset, you believe you can develop yourself, then you're open to accurate information about your current abilities, even if it is unflattering. What's more, if you're oriented toward learning as they are, you need accurate information about your current abilities in order to learn efficiently. However, if everything is either good news or bad news about your precious traits, as is with fixed mindset people, distortion almost always inevitably enters the picture. So, who are we if we accurately assess ourselves? Well, I can speak from a Christian perspective, say that as Christians we look at the world and say that we are people who are created in God's image, thus we have inherent worth and value. But we're also people who are broken and fallen, we're messed up, we're none of us perfect. We've all done questionable things. So on one hand, we're, we're created by God. On the other hand, we're broken, messed up, sinful people. And Jesus Christ tells us that in this, we are loved. We're not loved based on how we can, like after we change, but we're loved in our brokenness and in our mess. We are loved by God just the way we are. So if we see ourselves as imposters, we may fear that further success is even more likely to expose us. We may fear people finding us out for who we are. If we're proud, we may feel no need to improve because we're already amazing. But if we see ourselves as we are, messed up people, broken, loved by God, this is the path to growing into who God created us to be, into something better. So how we view ourselves is vitally important to growing as, as human beings. But also what's fascinating is we are also greatly influenced by how other people view us, or how we view others greatly impacts them. Uh, scientists did an experiment to show this, kind of a silly one. They gave graduate students rats to, to experiment on, and they told some of the students that, like, your rat is really smart. You're as a, you have an above-average rat. And the other students were told they were given, like, a below-average, below-intelligence rat. And the, the secret was all the rats were the same. So then these students ran the rats through different like mazes and experiments. And the students who had been told that they had smarter rats came back with findings that their rats were really smart. The students who had been told that they had less intelligent rats came back with findings that their rats were less intelligent. What the actual experimenter found was that the people were told what to expect. And when they were expecting... They, they got what they expected. They got smart rats to be smart, less intelligent rats to be less intelligent. I was listening to this podcast a while ago called Invisibilia. It's an NPR podcast. There's like six or seven episodes. Uh, it's great. I recommend if you like listening to podcasts, listen to it. There was the one that I, I especially enjoyed. It was called How to Become Batman. And in this podcast, they talked about a man named Daniel Kish. Daniel Kish, if you watch a video of him, if you see him walking down the street, he looks just like any other person. He rides his bike. He goes for hikes in the woods. He cooks dinner on the stove. But the surprising thing about him is that he's totally blind. He had a form of eye cancer when he was a baby, and he had to have both of his eyes removed. Most of us, I mean, I know I'm terrified of blindness. I, I could think I'd cut my arm off, lose my legs, just don't take my, like, I don't lose my sight. I think most of us are terrified of blindness, thinking that if we didn't have sight, it would make us useless people. 
But Kish was very lucky. His parents gave him freedom to explore the world. They let him go out and take risks. And Kish learned to, as a, as a, as a kid, to do something called echolocation, where if you watch a video of him on YouTube, he clicks, and that sound is how he gets his surroundings so he can ride bike. He's like, click, 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 like riding down the street. It's amazing. But for decades, scientists thought that the visual cortex in your brain in blind people was inactive because blind people can't see. They don't have vision, so why would the visual cortex in their brain do anything? Well, they hooked up uh, Daniel Kish to a, some sort of machine, and they, he was doing his echolocation, his clicking, and what these scientists found was that his visual cortex lit up as he was doing this. So what does that mean? So this is, hopefully I can explain this well, we'll see, but right now we're looking at this room, right? Everything we're seeing is actually kind of a picture in our brain. Like your brain is taking in light and giving you an image of the world. It's kind of inside of you to some degree. What they found was that blind people like Kish can also create an image of the world in their visual cortex, in their brain. They just can't use vision to do it. So they use other senses. Or, and this is what, listen to the podcast. It blew my mind. I was like, it was awesome. Blind people can kind of see. I just thought that was pretty amazing. But it was depressing too because another man in the, sto- in the podcast shared his story. Talked about how he worked at a factory and through an accident at the factory, he lost his sight. He went to a blind school and said, can you just teach me a few basic like, things so I can go through my, live my life and get back to work at my job? And this blind school said, blind people can't work at a factory. You can't do that if you're blind. And his story became someone who lost his job, became unemployed and homeless. Society tends to have low expectations of blind people. And what I find fascinating about the story of Daniel Kish is that he's working to change those expectations to show other blind people and the families of other blind people that they do not need to be confined to the life that so many people expect them to have. All that to say, and seriously, listen to the podcast, it's great, How to Become Batman, Invisibilia. But all that to say, just as how we see ourselves may tend to shape us, how we see others does a lot to shape them. So if we have low expectations for our kids or our coworkers or our neighbors, we may find them living into those low expectations. If we have high expectations 